Next year, 2023, is the Aun year, where many who connect to Nordic tradition in different ways, who will work to recover that ancient, octennially recurring festival, which in pre-Christian times was celebrated once every eight years. As the debates have started around this celebration, it has become increasingly clear that we can actually understand the Aun celebrations as some sort of ceremonies of healing, healing of that broken relation which the Aun myth outlines and which the ceremonies mirror and somehow respond to. Uh, so in this video, I will just condense the points about the Aun myths and I will share some thoughts about how to work with the Aun myth. And I will suggest a couple of contemporary mythic images, contemporary stories, as reflections on the underlying logic of the Aun myth, the Aun logic, you could say. Uh, one of these contemporary images is from the movie The Matrix. Uh, and then there's this amazing little myth about the philosopher René Descartes. It's been really awesome uh, actually to feel that this kind of right story, these meanings of such convincing force and power are actually growing and emerging through these online dialogues and yawnings about this, about the Aun celebration and about the Aun myth. That this particular ritual, you know, the idea that this particular ritual could or perhaps should be read in this very contemporary, relevant, animist way as a global call, call towards room, human reconnecting to the other than human in a more general sense. Uh, what has become clear to me through my yarn with Tyson Junkerporter is the foundational role which the myth of King Aun from Uppsala plays. Uh, I had some thoughts that I'd sort of been brewing on, and but uh, but Tyson just instantaneously understood and grasped the uh, potential of the myth, myth, and he just articulated the shit out of how we can read this myth directly in relation to the the uh, contemporary Ragnarok, both the pro prophecy of the Ragnarok and the way that the Ragnarok is manifesting in our world today. Um, what Tyson rightly remarked when I spoke to him about this is that the story itself will attract the right meanings, layered narratives, and that this narrative richness or wealth is in fact the quality that makes it a right story. It's a story of diagnosing decrepit aspects of human patterns of violence, actually. So I want to start by just telling the story so we can get this story basically working, get its working, its magic rolling more, right? And uh, after that, I will shoot some of these uh, ideas of my own on it. But feel free, of course, to follow my lead and, and bring your own stories this into this. And so here comes uh, the story pretty much as it is recounted by Snorri here in the Ynglinga saga, the sagas of the kings of Norway. I actually bought my version when I lived in Norway as a young man. So here it comes. Aun was the son of Jörund. He became king of the Swedes after his father. He was a wise man and a great sacrificer, a blood man, right? But he was not a warrior and he mostly stayed at home. At the same time, 
there was King Dan the Great in Denmark, and he got very old. His son was Frothi the Peaceful, and his sons Halfdan and Friedleif. They were warriors. Halfdan was the oldest of them, and he took an army to Svitjord, that's Sweden, um, against King Aun. They fought, but Halfdan won every time. At last, King Aun fled to Wester, Jutland, where he had, uh, uh, when he had been king in Uppsala for about 19 years, uh, and he was then a king in Jutland for 19 years, while Halfdan remained king in Uppsala. King Halfdan died in his bed at, in, in Uppsala, and he was buried there in a mound. And King Aun returned to Uppsala when he was 60 years of age. He made a great sacrifice, and in it he offered up his son to Odin. Aun got an answer from Odin that he should live 60 years longer, and he was afterwards king in Uppsala for 19 years. But then came Ola the Bold, a son of King Friedleif, with his army to Sweden against King Aun. And they had several ba battles with, it, which, with each other, but Ola was always uh, victorious. Then Aun fled a second time to Jutland, and for 19 years Ola reigned in Uppsala, until he was killed by Stakad the Old. After Ola's fall, Aun returned to Uppsala and ruled the kingdom for 19 years. Then he made a great sacrifice again for long life, in which he sacrificed his second son. And he received the answer from Odin that he should live as long as he gave one of his sons every ninth year, and also that he should name one of the districts in his country after the number of sons that he should offer up to Odin. When he had sacrificed the seventh of his sons, he continued to live, but in a way that he could not even walk, but was carried around in a chair. Then he sacrificed his eighth son and lived after, after that nine years more, just lying in his bed. Now he sacrificed his ninth son and lived 99 years more, but in a state where he was drinking out of a horn like an, a weaned infant. He had now, now only one son remaining, whom he also wanted to sacrifice and give Odin Uppsala and the domains thereunto belonging under the name Tiundaland, Ten Lands. But the Swedes would not allow it, so there was no sacrifice, and King Aun died and was buried in a mound in Uppsala. Since that time, it is called Aun's Sickness, when a man dies without pain, pain and an extremely uh, old age. Now, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this myth concerning details of reckoning and uh, the 19-year metonic cycle, uh, which seems to be referenced in these periods where uh, Aun was expelled from Uppsala. Uh, and if you read Swedish, then you should definitely check out the standard work on this stuff. That is uh, Andreas Norberg, Jul och Disting in Ifan Schötlich. He has a whole appendix about this stuff, and it's really uh, remarkable. So this is the fullest version of the myth here in the Inglinger saga, uh, but the myth seems to have been known in different parts of Scandinavia. The myth is attested in a number of sources, and interestingly, those Danish kings that are at odds with Aun in this myth, they also have these forms of this myth connected to them. And 
uh, one of them created not a spring celebration, but a midwinter celebration consistent with the fact that the octennial celebration in Denmark was a midwinter Yule celebration, according to the medieval chronicler Chitmar of Merseburg, who uh, reports these things. It was celebrated around Three Kings Day, or Epiphany, uh, perhaps not incidentally, exactly the day where the Aun Yule moon will fall in 2023, December 6th, uh, January 6th. Now, I always admonish others that they shouldn't see myths as somehow exemplary. That, that there has to be some sort of positive scheme in a myth, a little bit like Jesus is a model for morally right behavior and his resurrection is a model for salvation and so on. And I always say this to people, you know, don't think like that with animist narratives. That Odin rapes Rind is not a model for human behavior expressing the idea that rape is a good thing. But in spite of the fact that I'm always saying this, I was still like, what does this horrifying behavior of Aun mean? As as a reflection of the Aun cycle, this idea that he sacrifices one of his own sons and then he gets eight or nine more years to live in. you know. And what Tyson immediately saw uh, and what I had been sort of weaving around a little bit is that this is a cautionary tale. It is, of course, the opposite of exemplary. You know, it's cautionary. The point is that even from the perspective of some you know, very distant Iron Age monarchy where human sacrifice was, in fact, a meaningful, meaningful religious act, this is still a directly pathological behavior. Aun is murdering fertility. He's killing his own seed. He's killing his future, right? The killing of children is the most radical break on kinship that you can imagine. And why does he kill his own children? He does it for the most pathologically egotistical reason that you can imagine. He wants to prolong his own life into a state of catatonia, a meaningless, immobile immobile existence of sort of dead comfort, really, you know. And if our challenge today, everybody's challenge, is to be a good ancestor, then Aun is exactly the opposite. He is the most monumentally bad ancestor that it's possible to imagine. He's actually directly killing his own descendants to prolong his own life into this state of meaningless, almost non-existence, right? Kings, uh, in the medieval perception, are iconic of ancestry, uh, by the way, partly because uh, they are somehow related to deities, but also in more literal ways, uh, kings in past times had myriads of children, and that means that everybody today pretty much descend from kings, you know, because they had so many children that every single uh, generation. Kings are also connectors between people and the land uh, they live in somehow. There was a culture of uh, the king being responsible for the harmonious relation between human community and the land, the fertility. Pre-Christian kings could be sacrificed if there was bad fertility, if there was a rupture in the relation between human communities and the land. We should uh, consider reinstating that practice, by the way, to uh, sacrifice our political leaders to Odin if they violate the relation between uh, human communities and the land.
Uh, cool. And Aon essentially violates this connector role by breaking kinship. And this break of kinship is, an, is the iconic motif of collapsing interconnectedness in the animist reality. The break on kinship in Nordic animism is an ever-present motif of lost connectedness that threatens the stability and harmonious existence of the world. You find a lot of broken marriages in these totemic tales where human break marriage with their bear prince or their seal wife and so on. And the most iconic break on kinship is possibly Hother killing Baldur, the cosmic fratricide that makes the entire connectedness of the world unravel in absolute confrontation where the ash Yggdrasil burns and all the animist interconnected cosmos descends in social collapse, strife and ecological breakdown. Aun's killing of his own sons in order to persist, reduced to this catatone infant-like state, drinking out of a baby bottle basically, horn is a medieval baby bottle. I think it is part of that motif. It is that kind of a break on kinship. He is directly murdering his own descendants. Cool. So one very striking and I think powerful contemporary uh, reinvention of what you could call the Aun logic uh, is seen in the movie The Matrix. Aun is that kind of humanity in a sense. The human trapped in the Matrix of unending consumerist comfort, completely derived of agency, freedom, will, reduced to this organic lump of biological blubber confined to little cells where we live out our lives being fed out of tubes. Tubes that, by the way, feed us other human beings. It is a state of consumer comfort based on cannibalism. That is Aun's immobile state there on his bed, being fed through a baby bottle, uh, murdering his own children, snuffing out the life of his descendants. And that is us in our ultra-comfortable consumer society. We are eating away at the future, investing ourselves in these online synthetic social spaces, basking in the idiocies of some random, random celebrity or other, you know, becoming mentally catatone addicts of algorithm-generated mirror cabinets that affirms our dumbest and most conflictual uh, idiosyncrasies instead of creating relation with other, right? But the Aun celebration should call on the red pill, aim at healing this curse somehow, to tear these baby bottles out of our mouths and, you know, look at the stars, refine the ways to be good ancestors rather than what we are now. We are like Aun, murderous cannibal ancestors eating our own children, right? Cool. Another myth that uh, I think of as a very strong contemporary expression of the Aun myth uh, is this amazing little contemporary piece of um, mythology, which I also mentioned to to Tyson, uh, but I want to bring it up again here, and that is the story about Descartes' dog, which is is itself a myth, uh, and I'll I'll get back to why this exact uh, story has this particular character. Uh, The story basically goes that the French philosopher René Descartes, who is often considered the originator of this modern ruptured world, 
where there is this strength distinction between the inside subjectivity and the dead outside world. Um, so the story that goes, right, that being the father of rationalism, Descartes took his wife's dog, and I'm quoting here some obscure internet source whose name doesn't really deserve to be mentioned, taking a hammer, Descartes nailed the creature's paws, spread eagled to a board, and proceeded to chop it to pieces, utterly unfazed by the appearance of pain, whether he really was looking for the soul or not of this dog is, uh, has in fact been lost to history. All we know is that the, di- the dog died shortly afterwards in uh, unimaginable agony and how Descartes' wife reacted to finding out that her husband had mutilated and murdered her pet uh, to prove an obscure point has sadly not been recorded. Right, Descartes. Okay, so this is the story. Descartes, this philosopher who's often attributed with the most basic anti-animism, you could say, of of our contemporary perception, this idea of the dead exterior world, he cruelly murders a representative of this exterior world in order to prove that it doesn't have a soul. And this dog here is, in fact, a relation. It is his family dog. It belongs to his wife, you know, a little bit like Aun, Descartes is somehow killing a relation. And this killing seems to make his point or somehow serve to manifest that the dog didn't have a soul to begin with and couldn't feel any pain at all, even though it was screaming under the torture, right? This myth of killing is a replay, I think, of basic cosmological or cosmogonic, like world-creating structures uh, that you also find in, in uh, ancient mythologies, such as the Mesopotamian god Marduk, who's killing the uh, proto-being Tiamat, the Hindu Indra, who's killing Vritra, the serpent, and of course Odin and his brothers killing Ymir. In these ancient mythologies, this primordial kill seems to become the foundation of all life somehow. But in this particular myth of Descartes, it seems almost satanic in its inversion of the original uh, animist myths of, of the original kill. Descartes' torture of the dog makes the point that the exterior world is dead, so it lays the ground for that ordering the, of the world where the exterior world is, is dead. It kills the world, almost. right? Now, there actually is no historical basis that this ever really happened. <laughs> and that's part of the reason that it is a myth. Perhaps that doesn't mean that, that anything that isn't historically founded is necessarily a myth. Um, but in my view, this, is a, this story is not only a myth, it is a right story. That, because it mythically reflects on and expresses how Descartes inflicts death on the exterior world. It is an animist exploration of Descartes as the mythic originator of the disenchantment, of the deanimated world, of the dead exterior world. As a myth, it expresses the relation um, uh, in the implementation of that Cartesian, you know, coming from Descartes, world where the exterior world is dead. So killing the dog is a murder of animism. The dog is, in fact, a symbol of animism because it's a non-human which is in very strong relation to humans, right? 
It is the animal, perhaps, which is the most iconically related to humans. In its wild form, it is a wolf, uh, a being that can, under the right circumstances, even be uh, dangerous to humans. Uh, but in the form of the dog, it becomes that most trustworthy ally, right? So the dog really uh, represents human uh, relating, quintessential human relating with the other than human. And that is animism, you know. And as if, if we haven't or hadn't already understood the point, then this strange little story underlines the relation by adding that it's his wife's dog. This under, underlines Descartes' breaking relation. We intuitively feel that he probably knew the dog, he probably loved that dog, right? And we also feel the slight bit of trouble that René would probably face when he came home from the academy with a, hey, Han, I'm home. Um, just one thing, I nailed your dog to a board and tortured it to death. Yeah, I, I just kind of needed to visualize to some students that animals, animals don't have a soul and that it's horrifying screams of agony was just a mechanical response. <laughs> we would guess that René probably didn't get laid that night, you know? And... Uh, doing it so doing it to his wife's dog sort of underlines the story as a break on relation basically so it is a contemporary mythic expression of the own logic the murder of uh, relation relatedness and I think that the fact that this historically didn't happen almost makes it better as a myth it has grown into being because of the way it expresses and analyzes relatedness uh, in our world. For instance, uh, perhaps our relation to the other than humans that we kill in order to eat them, right? In, in, in animist uh, uh, culture, often any kill of an other than human has aspects of sacrifice or uh, rituals of respect. You know, we even see this in Abrahamic traditions that often do not kill a being without making it halal, for instance, or kosher sacralizing the blood to God, you know, for instance, by pouring it on the ground. Uh, in animist tradition, the blood will often be perceived as essential of the life, and that will be taken in as a vessel for life and handled in very careful ways. Um, people will apologize to an animal for the violence, or they would take pains to avoid that it doesn't suffer, right? Uh, or they would handle the, the actual kill with great caution and, and uh, solemnity even. And it, it almost seems to me that this, um, uh, like in itself meaningful or overcharged mega indifference in Descartes' iconically rationalist cruelty against his wife's dog, it almost seems to mirror, you know, the in, indifferent rationalized cruelty of our conventional meat production systems today. You know, it's also almost as if Every time we sent one of the cohabitants of this world through these very industrialized, very depersonalized uh, horror systems, we are almost replaying Descartes' brutal killing of this dog, killing the relation. We are King Aun, also in the way that we abuse other than humans on this, uh, on the, on this planet. Um, and I, I'm not sure what to do with this, you know. One way of bringing this uh, into ceremony, 
could perhaps be making sure that our celebrations don't end up becoming, I don't know, costuming as Vikings and eating huge loads of conventionally produced pork meat, right? That wouldn't, it wouldn't really make, make so much sense to do that as an out celebration, perhaps, you know, perhaps it would, perhaps reinstitution, reinstituting respectful, sacrificial killing of what is eaten at such a uh, celebration, insisting on that somehow, you know, perhaps some will make vows that they will only eat respectfully sacrificed or respectfully uh, hunted beings or become vegans or whatever, you know, what, what makes sense, different things would make sense to different people. But yeah, these are just free thoughts, uh, you know, uh, on how we can work with this amazing, amazing story on violence on kin as the root of our world being broken. That violence that sustains the catatone consumer coma matrix state that we live in. You know? So I would just encourage to think about how to link this own story into contemporary evocative narratives and imagery in ways that you know uh, can grow ceremony out of it you know and understanding and and uh, meanings basically what kinds of rupturing violence can we address uh, and what sense does it mean make to address them ritually and how can we call on the ceremonial healing of the associated wounds you know the wounds of colonial violence, historic violence, contemporary economic violence, ecologic violence, violence on other, different others, symbolic violence, as I have suggested with the last story here of Descartes, ontological violence, the violence on reality itself, the murder of the animist reality. You know, In what ways are all these related to each other? It's also an interesting question. And how can we invoke the changes of practice that would be uh, a deeper cultural healing of you know our culture which is so deeply predicated on these own logic or own patterns of incapacitated welfare supported by outsourcing of violence thanks for listening and uh, see you around my name is rune jane rasmus the work that I'm sharing with you on this channel focuses on recovering Euro-traditional animist knowledge. This is the fruit of a life of study and research all over the world, and I hold a doctorate from the oldest university in the Nordic region, but I'm choosing to popularize rather than to focus on academic publication. Conventional institutions, however, have yet to warm up properly to my perspective so if you appreciate what i do then please do consider that i also need to feed my family uh, for the price of less than one beer per month you can become a patron supporter or you can head over to my web shop and enter into exchange relation with me you can also give single donations to my paypal account or if you have contact with someone that might help me project this incredibly important perspective to the world then do drop me a pm and uh, remember also to clickety-click and subscribe, follow, share, comment and all that. Thank you very much. Oh
Padre, 